So now about our next speaker. Dr. Benjamin Cohen is a historian, environmental studies, and science and technology studies scholar whose research rests at the intersection of the histories of science, technology, and the environment with a particular expertise in the cultural contexts of industrial agriculture. Ben earned his PhD from Virginia Tech in 2005, and from that time until 2011, he taught in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at the University of Virginia, where he was founder and director of the UVA Food Collaborative and founder and curator of the Thornton Hall Art Gallery. And I'm, I'm sure he's desperately waiting to see how the UVA game goes today. This past fall, he accepted a position as an assistant professor of engineering studies at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. He is author of Notes from the Ground, Science, Soil, and Society in the American Countryside, published by Yale University Press in 2009, in which he examines the cultural conditions that brought agriculture and science together in the 19th century America. Ben explores how and why agrarian Americans, yeomen farmers, gentlemen planters, politicians, and policymakers accepted, resisted, and shaped scientific ways of knowing the land. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Benjamin Cohen, who will speak to us on the topic, Notes from the Ground, Science, Soil, and Society in the American Countryside. Thank you, thank you all. I'll set my timer, although I was thinking your next iteration should be that the speakers tweet while they're, <laughs> while they're speaking. <laughs> I actually don't know how to. <laughs> don't tell my students. Uh, so let me, um, I'll, I'll repeat some of the intro matter. The, the cover of my book here, Notes from the Ground, uh, is a book that does examine the cultural conditions from which this thing called science and this thing called agriculture came together, uh, which is a story that begins in the later 18th century and becomes fully manifest, more or less by the dawn of the Civil War. Um, it's a book about connections between nature and science, between um, between the material and the conceptual, between things and ideas. You might take it for granted, we might take it for granted that this combination was inevitable, that they were bound to come together, uh, the connection of science and agriculture, that it's a predictable outcome, um, an example of progress and improvement, that for anyone to reject or dismiss rigor and systematic activity, recorded observations, um, quantified methods would, would basically form the terms of what we consider science. Uh, for anybody to reject that must be ignorant and backward. Resistance to change with their feet stuck in the mud. There were a lot of these claims made at the time. <coughs> in fact, a good majority of the works in the history of science and environmental history uh, do tell that story. They rely on the eventual triumph of scientific agriculture as its own explanation, reading backwards to find the story. Um, the view is wrong. Um, 
Evidence I found from account books, diaries, journals, correspondences of antebellum farmers show this, and many of these were in Virginia. The core of the book takes place in Virginia, although uh, a friend of mine I was very happy with my cover, which is a plate from Virgil's Georgics, which is not in Virginia. Uh, a friend of mine pointed out to me after I was very proud of the cover, he's like, well, you know that's not even America. <laughs> but it gets to the point, and I'll come back to Virgil later in the talk. Um, not just Virginia, but all across the early republic, uh, these debates and conversations were rampant. Um, the story is more complicated, more interesting, and I think more revealing for ideas about environmental change that are relevant for today than prior works had led on. So it took quite a lot of work for this combination to come about, agriculture and science. It wasn't easy, it wasn't inevitable, and yes, Virginia was a hotbed for debates about that eventual combination. So notes from the ground, this book is about active, not passive, uh, the active or not passive roles that farmers played, that philosophers played, that uh, planters, that politicians played, their neighbors played, and in many cases their slaves um, in making these changes. Uh, at the end of this talk, I want to tail back um, to discuss just a, a few points about uh, a participatory ethic that I think comes from this active, not passive role because um, I think that's relevant for how we can think about newer and more sustainable ways of living and defining nature in the 21st century, even though the story I'm telling is about the 19th century. So, um, with your permission, I will start with this, which on the screen looks huge, but actually is a small device. It's probably only maybe, uh, I don't know, not quite a foot wide, six inches tall. Um, I want to start with this small thing projected in large uh, focus here and try to make a big deal out of it. And I really want to make a big deal out of it so that I can move on to some other topics and what's really my main point of interest to talk about today. It's not just what was Virginia's 19th century environment like, but how did 19th century Virginian Americans, uh, Virginians know what their environment was like? Um, so if you'll abide, I'll talk about the strange thing for a minute which will let me talk about something I think is much more interesting called book farming. That'll let me talk about Virgil for a little bit and then a couple of uh, English and Prussian chemists and about all the antebellum types who knew about all this stuff. Uh, so this thing, this is a moral analyzing apparatus. Uh, it was used to measure the quantity or the quality of moral, which is calcareous fertilizer, uh, calcium rich shell like deposits often found on riverbanks. You'd put your fertilizer in A, in the, in the glass vessel, and drip, drip some reactive chemicals through C, watch the off-gassing through B, and let some of the evaporation take place, and then measure the difference from before and after. Then do some nifty calculations, and you can figure out uh, how potent your carbonate of lime deposits are, so basically spreading lime uh, on your fields. This apparatus was invented in 1834 by uh, a gentleman named William Barton Rogers. Um, Rogers was a chemist and a geologist, a professor at UVA. Um, he had been at William & Mary, but he left William & Mary to go to UVA because it was obvious in the 1820s to him that William & Mary would be shutting down soon now that <laughs> UVA was starting up. <laughs> that's, that's not my view, that was his view. He was a renowned scientist. In the 1830s, he ran Virginia's Geological Survey, uh, and he would later found an upstart school in Cambridge called the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, after he left UVA in the, in the 50s. Um, so no matter how renowned he was, this was not a sophisticated device uh, on purpose. 
Um, it was published in Edmund Ruffin's agricultural paper called the Farmer's Register. Rogers designed it for ease and accuracy and dependability. And I want to make a big deal out of it because it stands as a centerpiece for questions about the redefinition of nature, of the environment. Rogers intended it to be part of the farming life, not this esoteric scientific piece of equipment. Uh, Ruffin promoted it in his journal to promote agrarian culture. Farmers used it to seek improvement in their fields. This version was better than a more unwieldy fertilizer analyzer by an English chemist named Humphrey Davy, um, who Ruffin was inspired by but quibbled with, who Rogers wasn't that interested in, and who most farmers distrusted because he was English. And he wasn't a farmer. Uh, and those, those are key points when you want to gain credibility on the ground. So those disagreements with, uh, with Davy weren't just with Davy um, and this new called systematic agriculture. The term that they used was systematic. Um, these disagreements were based on different views about how to improve the land. The pervasive ethic of the early republic was one of improvement. It was known as the era of improvement. It was the era of internal improvements. Um, the plea for improvement was something that was built on, inherited from an 18th century philosophy that we think of as the Enlightenment, which, if I could deign to summarize an entire era in philosophy with one quip, is this view that we should try to look ahead to create new possible futures instead of focusing on recovering lost pasts. So it's this future image which gives us this 19th century ethic of improvement, of progress. How do we make the world a better place? And if you're talking about agricultural land, if you're talking about farmers, how do we achieve progress? Who says what progress is? How do we know when we get it? How do you measure it? So what was the best way to improvement? How do you define it? In an agrarian world, which is all the world, that is, improving culture required improving the soil and thus improving the agricultural patterns of the world. There's something subtle in this, but also grand, that I don't want to miss which is that when someone proposed new ways to work the land and to measure fertilizer and to operate their farm, they were also proposing new ways to organize everyday life and the cultural values that underscored it. And farmers at the time understood this quite well. It wasn't just a very narrow question about what's this thing do for us. It was a larger cultural question about how do we achieve moral and cultural progress. So when new systematic means for working the land uh, working the soil were introduced and debated. At stake was who would tell others how to run their farms, how to promote the political economy of the young country. Uh, in the context of the 19th century, improvement, this big watchword, improvement, um, was at once a moral and agricultural plea. There wasn't a distinction between the two. Um, I, I like thinking and talking a lot about improvement and progress because uh, although I'm a historian and I'm looking at specific historical context, the ideas of progress and improvement are now quite timeless. They, they, we have these debates all the time. What's better? What does it mean to create a better future? How do you define progress? And those don't go, those don't take too long to get to the second question of, well, who do we listen to or who's in charge? Who do we trust to lead us to that progress? Why do we believe them? Um, you might define the entire political process as an argument over that question. So Virginians were deeply invested in this process of improvement. Um, in the context of today's conference, uh, I think what I'm saying also suggests that the environment in 19th century Virginia was not mainly a site of passive appreciation or distant observation. Um, it was a site of work and activity. That's how people understood and fashioned the environment. 
if you want to get a better sense of the environment, that is, then you have to pay attention to those goals of improvement and progress, of how to make it better. So most of the people who are interested in this device, uh, the ones who wanted this analyzer, the ones who were squarely in the center of this thick improvement ethic, uh, were people like Cabell, Bagby, Cock, Wickham, Madison, Monroe, Jefferson, a lot of famous sons of Virginia. They sought improvement on their lands at places like Bremo Bluffs and Hickory Hill, Monticello, uh, along the James, throughout Virginia. They did it as part of new civic organizations like the Agricultural Society of Albemarle, the Agricultural Society of Virginia, the Virginia Society for the Promotion of Agriculture, and scores of others across the country. Virginia was in no way unique in the sense of civic organization and the pursuit of, of improvement. They did it in the agricultural press, which got started in the 1820s and by the dawn of the Civil War uh, featured about 400 papers uh, nationwide. Um, they did it with slaves, they did it with hired labor, they did it on small scales and large scales with people as little known as John Walker and John Spurrier, with people who worked less than 100 acres to people who were quite famous, owned 100, 200 slaves and had thousands of acres. John Hartwell Cock, Hanover County planner William Fanny Wickham, uh, all people that I learned about actually working in the archives here at the Society. The influence of those groups, the ASA, the Agricultural Society of Virginia, reached into the daily lives of the members who were encouraged to become diarists. Uh, they were encouraged to tabulate the results of their practices for personal advance and for these organizations' collective benefit. Thus was agricultural science generated by farmers themselves, or as I found by slaves too, the uh, invisible technicians who worked the fields to actually make this happen. At a time when chemistry and other laboratory sciences were still gaining their organizational footing, because this is the dawn of modern science, there wasn't something called science that people could pick from the shelf. It didn't quite exist yet in the way that we think of it now. Um, it was these networks of everyday science on the ground, fostered by agricultural associations, which became the proving grounds for new environmental definitions and chemical theories. So there's a lot more to say about all that. Um, I wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> but with respect to the forum today and the time that I have, I want to pick out an example to illustrate some of the larger themes. Um, which is the book farming example. This is too much to read over quickly, but there's some samplings of, of this idea of book farming, an apology for book farmers, uh, the science of agriculture and book farming. Um, book farming is basically the practice of guiding field management, soil fertilization and augmentation, <laughs> crop rotation, crop selection and the like, um, by reference to written works on agriculture. It refers to a form of knowledge that differs from traditional, familial, and experiential knowledge. Instead of knowing it by doing it, you know it by reading about it. Uh, it's codified and collected and portable. It's packaged in text and disconnected from the place where it's made. It's not local knowledge. The tension that it introduces to agrarian culture has everything to do with place-based environmental ethics which is just a fancy way to say that you know what the environment is because you live there. You understand it as a place that's part of your life, not as a scientific measurement which has no uh, reference to specific locality. It also has a lot to do with trust and credibility in the knowledge making process. Should the farmer, planner, yeoman trust these books? Is book farming a legitimate activity? Who wrote them and what do they know about it? So for my sake, and this is something, some of the stuff that you get in the book, 
Um, when approaching questions about knowledge of the land, uh, rather than ask the Nixonian question of what agrarians knew and when they knew it, <laughs> I was more interested in questions about credibility and authority. When someone claimed to know something new about the soil, why did anybody else believe them? How did those mechanisms for trust play out? And the whole call of this is, uh, it's an interesting question for me and throughout the book because it gets at these questions about what will progress mean? What does environmental improvement actually mean? So I, ha I have, there's these quotes and I have a few more here. Uh, debating the terms, here's some selections. Um, who are to be believed in this discussion? Either the observing practical farmers who have ocular demonstrations, they see it with their eyes, of their own experiments, or chemical men, spelled that way, who know more about eating wheat than growing it. <laughs> or if you're arguing it the other way, you think somebody has a stupid prejudice against scientific agriculture. What's the problem here? This is the future. Why aren't you jumping on the bandwagon? Um, if a few conceited asses have read Liebig's chemistry and committed foolish blunders, does it therefore follow that clever men will derive no profitable knowledge? Liebig, I should say, uh, I mentioned the, the English chemist Humphrey Davy. Um, he was the first guy to publish a book called Agricultural Chemistry, and that was in 1813, uh, and he was British. Um, in, the in the decades to follow, though, he was surpassed by a Prussian chemist, Eustace von Liebig. So you see that name throughout the agricultural press and the papers. So here's a nice... Uh, casting aspersions on Liebig here. So if you're for book farming, here's something you might say. The mere clodhopper, the contemner of book learning, tells his ill-fated prodigy to put their trust in their mules and their oxen, and for the rest to watch the changes of the moon and the shifting of the winds is more important than all the philosophy that was ever promulgated. It's the sense of you're not going to listen to anybody. We're actually sitting here working on the stuff and you could care less. You should actually pay attention. We're learning. That's the pro argument. Dirt farmers who will ne neither take an agricultural paper, read it when given, nor believe its contents uh, are merely stubborn. Now you can look at the other side if you're against it. Um, it's just the rage of the day. These things come and go. Hucksters and charlatans blow through town and tell us what we should do. Why are these guys any different? Davy doesn't even know where Virginia is. Don't even get us started on Liebig. He's Prussian. That's even farther. We're not even sure how to say his name. It's spelled lie big. Does that mean anything? <laughs> that many of these theories concocted by the philosopher in his closet are destined to fall before the superior knowledge of the practical farmer, we do not doubt. The philosopher must exchange his laboratory for the open field. If you want to know what the environment is, you have to get out of the lab. So this whole rise of the laboratory movement in the early 1800s is bunk, and it's not going to help us achieve our long-standing, deeply rooted cultural, moral, and ethical material goals of improvement. That was ad-libbing by me. Here's more Lie Liebig stuff. He's no doubt a very clever gentleman and a, more profound, and a most profound chemist, but he knows about as much of agriculture as the horse that plows the ground. There isn't an old man in, that stands, there isn't, there's not an old man that stands between stilts of a plow in Virginia that can't tell him of facts totally at variance with his finest spun theories. Uh, and this was a rich debate, back and forth, and it was, it, it took me a while to figure out what was happening here. Um, the book farming debate's name 
an environmental, cultural, and philosophical issue that's long-standing and it's with us still. Who do you trust? Who do we believe? Whose knowledge is most valid? Uh, those loose debates have long been an issue of armchair philosophy that had the testimony of hands-on workers on one side, the physically disengaged pontificators, the men with silk gloves on, that's a quote, men with silk gloves on, uh, on the others, as one writer would have it. Um, do you know more about eating wheat than growing it? What does this Prussian, this guy Liebig, know about local conditions on the ground in Hanover County, Virginia? Um, I'm giving a pretty drastically abbreviated version of what was a very rich and complicated and long-standing debate throughout the literature. Um, though, of course, I hope you'll want to learn more about it. Should I go back to the front slide? There's a whole book you can read. <laughs> the larger point I want to make is that the resolution of book farming debates in the early republic leads us across a path, the end of which elevates the status of scientific agriculture. Its, its status is heightened, though, not because the chemists showed the superiority of scientific agriculture, not because Liebig or Davy came in to save the day, but because the farmers had vetted these experiments themselves. They'd conducted their own trials. They had debated the work-based virtue of doing so in their daily lives for decades across not just Virginia, but the entire early republic. In the front half of the century, book farming was perceived as a substitute for working the land. It was a way to disengage and remove yourself from the land. By the latter half of the century, farmers start to started to see it as a form of activity in its own right. It wasn't a substitute for labor, it was its own kind of labor. It took work to do the scientific activity, and thus it wasn't just a sleight of hand to get us out of doing the work. Rather than a substitute for interaction with the land, it was a new form of it. When Liebig's chemistry rose to prominence by the 1850s, which it did, um, to this day, if you read uh, like Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma and the in introduction, he'll say, it all started with Liebig um, because he did the scientific experiments to, to define the, what's called the NPK paradigm, that it's nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium as the main elements. That's Liebig in the 1840s. Um, when his chemistry rose to prominence, it did so with the farming classes understanding it as part of their own civic values of work and knowledge production that were based on active engagement, not passive distance. They were part of this activity. They were on the ground doing the experiments, and they learned quite a bit about their land from their own work. So it wasn't just Liebig coming in. They could have a dialogue. They could criticize him because they knew what they were doing. So <clears throat> there's another piece that I want to add. It, it requires me to step back or to the side for a minute, but I'll come, I'll come right back in. Um, and this will allow me to get back to Virgil. Um, and this is a comment on the underlying environmental ethic that helps explain the 19th century view of agrarian nature, the environment in Virginia's uh, 19th century. To make sense of it and to push the case that talking about the environment in 19th century means talking about living on the land, um, I want to point to this underlying pervasive feature of the time, which is Virgil's Georgic ethic. Um, you might not know Virgil directly, and uh, certainly probably don't know the Georgics. Um, it's not a common reference. Um, and no, it doesn't have to do with King George or George Washington or Georgian culture. Um, it was based on his poem called The Georgics. Uh, but Virgil's more popular expression of environmental ethics is the pastoral ethic. Um, as in this 1830s portrait, quite famous, 
uh, called the pastoral state that Thomas Cole painted as the founder of the Hudson, uh, Hudson River Valley School of, of Landscape Portraiture. Um, so with Cole and with this image, I, I, I could have got a crisper version for us. I should have had um, Steve could have taken a, a picture. Um, this comes from Virgil's poem, The Eclogues, or sometimes called The Bucolics. Uh, the pastoral or Arcadian ethic is an aesthetic and emotional response to timeless, gentle, leisured cultivation. See, I tried to say it in a gentle, leisurely way. <laughs> in particular, it gives us an image of passive contemplation, of staff-holding shepherds resting in mountain valleys, characterizing humans as frolicking lightly and frolicking leisurely in a nature that's very well suited for romantic values. And so the, the, the resurgence of pastoral imagery, imagery did fit within this uh, romantic era of the early 19th century as well. It shows humans gently, gently and almost passively placed within the contours of the mountains, valleys, streams, and fields uh, that you find in this view. There's even a little, here's a kid playing with chalk. Here's like a Socrates looking guy, just thinking. People frolic. Uh, I, I grabbed another picture. Here's, here's a Virginia scene for our sake, which I think is part of the, the same ethos. This is Frederick Church's uh, really amazing portrait of, of Natural Bridge, as also being in this pastoral mode. Uh, and here's the back to the cover of the book. This is a plate from Virgil's Georgics. This is a, a working environment. Virgil gave us more than the pastoral, although it is the dominant form um, that I think is still quite pervasive today, the way we understand how we should live uh, on the land, in a very disengaged sense. Um, Virgil also presented the land as a site of labor. In this Georgic world, people work. For the Georgic, labor is life. For the pastoral, leisure is life. Human intervention is a central tenet of the Georgic ethic. It's not a problematic relationship that you try to explain away. And so the contrast that I want to draw is one between an ethic of idyllic and passive identity that you get with the pastoral ethic and a work-based one that assumes human labor on the land that demands attention to forms of activity and engagement. So this Georgic reference is neither incidental nor theoretical. I'm not just drawing upon it to look back. Um, as revived by European um, rural improvers in the 18th century, it formed the, uh, the underlying plank for what was called uh, the Georgic Tours, where natural philosophers would, would uh, travel around the countryside to try to learn how farming works by actually going to farms. This was an innovation at the time. We might be able to figure this out if we actually see how farming works. So they started, a, there was a whole large literature on the Georgic Tours. Um, in the United States, the Georgic was more democratized. Every farmer was a natural philosopher. The final arbiter of theories uh, emerging from laboratory chemists would be the farmers themselves on the land. So that idea of the Georgic became suffused within uh, the working landscapes of the antebellum era. Uh, the Georgic infused the thought of the nation's founders for whom agricultural improvement was the highest calling of citizenship in a nation whose land was, to their minds, still new and unfinished. It ultimately became less the ethic of those who migrated to new land and more of those who stayed behind on an increasingly exhausted soil of the eastern uh, colonies and states. It was a means to build agrarian society and politics in eastern states, both free and slave. And in a sense, um, it might be a kind of precursor to an ethic of sustainability, although that's just me putting that on them. It's not like they were talking about it that way. 
By the 1820s, the Georgic was in the air, um, references throughout all those agricultural papers and, and within the book farming debates, um, in treatises and speeches, and more subtly in the ways that farmers argued about improvement. Um, I bring it up now because it helped reconcile that common distrust of book farming. The Georgic solution was to promote what was called homespun science, uh, which was the more common term. You'll, if you, uh, I don't know where you would Google this, just look in the VHS's catalog for homespun science. You'll find a lot of them. Um, homespun science, which is the province of the, quote, sun-browned practical farmers who knew just as much about growing weed as eating it. That farmer acquainted himself with chemistry and experimented in his own fields. He, crucially, shared his results with his fellow farmers through those agricultural associations and the rural press. I concluded my point earlier. I forget what's. Well, actually, I'd taken this out of. Uh, all right, well, improv. So this is important because uh, this is actually Hickory Hill, which is uh, William Fanning Wickham's paper. This is one of uh, this is a map from the holdings here um, at the VHS. This is actually more of the kind of imagery that would be carried around and showed off to uh, to neighbors and others more so than Thomas Cole or Frederick Church. Uh, it's a lot less evocative, um, but it's much more workaday, uh, just diagramming all your fields. One nice thing is that um, later on in the century, all these fields get renamed just by their number. They lose their actual place-based reference, and they just become numerical. Field 1, Field 2, Field 3, instead of South Wales, the Lane, Hickory Hill. Um, <clears throat> let me go back to the conclusion I made with my book farming point, was that in the front half of the century, it was perceived as a substitute for working the land and a way to disengage and remove oneself from the land. That perception was born of the Georgic sensibility that agrarians carried with them, which is why I wanted to bring in the Georgic ethic to help explain the resolution to the book farming debates. By the middle of the century, these farmers recognized book farming and its associated experimental activities as a form of activity in its own right, a way one could work the land and engage with the soil. Rather than a substitute for interaction with the land, it became a new form of it. So what I'm trying to do is come back to my earlier point, uh, that the environment in 19th century Virginia was understood not as a site of passive appreciation or distant observation, but as one of work in activity. Um, one of my original questions was, it's less what was the environment like in the 19th century in Virginia, and more about um, how did Virginians know what the environment was like? How did they formulate ideas about it. If you want to get a better sense of the environment that is, then we need to pay more attention to the pervasive Georgic goals of improvement. The language does fade out after the antebellum, and really by the second half of the antebellum period, you don't find as many references exactly to this term, the Georgic. Um, but the ethic that it stands for comes in uh, with other terms, especially things like home, homespun science. Um, so this was, uh, I'll, I'll use this to jump to my next slide. This is uh, Wickham's Marl Pitt schematic. Uh, he kind of started in almost an industrial uh, agricultural site. It's, again, that's me using that word, um, to plan out and map out uh, his marling activities, the reason that he would want this marl analyzer. Um, he's digging, carting, hauling, spreading hundreds of bushels of this stuff across his land, which takes weeks and months to do. And he's diagnosing the success and the failure of these, and he's marking off these and conducting experiments with them. And it takes a lot of work. 
So we're back to this little apparatus, uh, a device used to measure nature. It's one way to define the environment. And in its own time, it helped farmers seek their goals of progress and improvement. So this little instrument keys us into an entire era of cultural and environmental issues and cultural and environmental debates, which again, were the same thing. The debates that Rogers hosted across the state, the ones that Jefferson and later planters and farmers of Virginia helped propagate, they were set within regional, national, uh, and even global debates about political economy and the future of society. So here I am again making a big deal out of this small device. So for me, I want to have a few concluding remarks um, because I, I want to say that agricultural science, uh, a new way to define the environment, gained credibility because it was produced within a rich cultural context of improvement that kept citizenship, civic virtue, and moral progress uh, together with material agricultural improvements. It was produced, that is, not just because scientists said so, but because farmers and planters were already used to the experimental mode of thought and practice that scientific agriculture promoted. So that original uh, historiography of reading backwards to resistance and ignorance and um, feet stuck in the mud as a reason not to accept it um, when you actually, I'll go with the pun, when you dig into the uh, material itself, you find uh, a pretty wise set of agrarians coming to terms with uh, and grappling with these complicated debates about what's the best way to run my farm. If you want the bigger picture here, uh, which goes beyond my book, it's, it's the long view, and that we should care about this because that uh, eventual success of scientific agriculture um, provides the underpinnings for the rise of industrial agriculture itself, which is more of a later 19th century, early 20th century phenomenon. Um, the ones that uh, built the environmental or industrial system that we still contend with today were built on debates from the early republic. So you can look at the government's decision to form the USDA in 1862, um, which I think may serve best to underscore that by that time Americans were organizing in legislating a different kind of knowledge of the land, one that was meant to be installed in fields, accessible and profitable in ways dictated by scientific principles of soil identity and manipulation that before then were only loosely understood or practiced. Uh, this allowed for a change not just in how Americans produced food, remember that agriculture is about food, sometimes my students forget that, um, but in how we interact with agrarian natures in, in, in ways that remain with us today. Um, one of Wendell Berry's famous lines is that how we eat determines to a large extent how the natural world is used. Our modern agricultural system dramatically changed the way humans produce food, and with that, a crucial way that we use the natural world. That system was built on concepts of soil identity that were developed across the decades of the early republic. So that's a historical point, uh, true enough. That's a uh, historical conclusion. Um, but studying this work on agro-environmental progress and improvement did lead me into working more on contemporary food studies as well. Um, the local food movement, sustainable agricultural, organics. Um, and I come to those current movements seeing them as seeking another renewed definition of progress, the same argument of progress and improvement. What's the way forward? So I see these local food advocates, of which I'm one, promoting a view of the environment based on these values and principles of interaction, of activity, based on getting your hands dirty. Um, it's not a wilderness ethic, uh, nor is it one premised on separation from or passive placement on the land. This isn't Thomas Cole. 
it is instead a moral question about the, the most appropriate ways to live in nature. Um, since that's never straightforward, people disagree, I've come to find this, uh, you might do better to approach it, we might do better to approach it as a cultural community building effort too, with a work-based Georgic sensibility, improving the land and improving the culture might again find common ground. So in one sense, the relevance for me for today is about connections to the land. And I see the Georgic ethic as this, as this means for us to see connections and build connections to the land instead of separation from it. And I think you see this with you know, farmers markets, with community gardens, with urban farms, with food hubs, with community supported agriculture, with CSAs, all the staples of, of today's uh, local food movement. Um, they're all examples of new ways to interact more directly rather than less directly and more actively with how our food is grown, with how we use the natural world. Rather than passive consumerism, we find an array of efforts to, that are meant to promote involvement. They're all predicated on the Georgic value of engagement and participation. So in another sense, I see, and I've, I've argued elsewhere, that there's a place for a renewed kind of Georgic science based on interaction in the fields and founded on community-based research principles uh, as opposed to laboratory science, which is divorced and distanced from the fields. Um, rather than framing organics and the local food movement as pro or anti-science, and I, I've seen arguments where um, organics and, and local food advocates are labeled anti-science, um, I would rather talk about what kind of science, not whether or not to do it, which to me is kind of the same question that the book farming debaters were grappling with. Rather than an industrial, mechanistic, chemical kind, uh, I'd rather see a Georgic science built on values of ecological health and Georgic technology, something I do with engineers, designed to connect rather than disconnect us from the land. So just as with book farming, it isn't that you work the land, but how you work the land, that's the bigger question. Um, it isn't just how you do it, but who you are and what you know. Uh, these are still matters of experience and credibility and I hope civic virtue. Um, and I wanna, I'll leave it there. Um, thank you. I was just curious how the Farmer's Almanac fit into this dichotomy of opinions. Yeah, right in the middle of it. Uh, the Farmer's Almanac would, maybe not surprisingly, tend to, to be more of um, not castigating book farming, but saying we're the kind of book, we're the kind of literature that represents the proper way. So they would define it more as uh, foreign versus domestic instead of book or no book. Although it, it wasn't clear-cut either. I actually thought it would be pretty clear-cut. I could just go to Old Farmer's Almanacs and place them on one side of this. But uh, they were pretty complicated as well. Yes, uh, how do you square the scientific Georgic approach to agriculture that you're describing with the widespread and exploitive and destructive practice of most big plantation owners of the tidewater to deplete the soil and and move west with their slaves and sell. Yeah, well, I guess what I found was a, a richer diversity of that where um, sometimes the Georgic was used for its rhetorical value rather than its actual in practice value. And I think that Western movement represented um, the uses of that rhetorical value. 
Whereas I did find enough farmers who were trying to deal with the problem of exhausted soil, exhausted soil for the sake of uh, regenerating Virginia instead of leaving it behind. Um, there's another uh, uh, a scholar, um, Stephen Stoll, who's written a book called Larding the Lean Earth, who talks a lot about this of, and, and, and tries to make the case for early conservationist ethic really being these farmers on the eastern seaboard who are trying to hold their lands instead of giving up. And uh, one of the quotes that I took off, taken off at the last minute was, um, we've got to keep, we don't want all our sons to go off to Ohio. Let's do this work here to try to regenerate Virginia. So I, I guess my answer is there were a lot of different approaches happening at the same time. And I, I think we know more about the ones who depleted that soil and just picked up and kept moving. And I was trying to recover more of, of the ones who were trying to stay. <coughs> they had trouble squaring it, too. It's <laughs> a good question. Uh, do we see these book, par book farming debate patterns in New England as well? Because if not, it seems like dispersed settlement patterns might uh, contribute significantly to the uptake of, of science because of written communication necessities. Yeah, it was just as rampant in New England. Um, in fact, the book is divided in two halves. And the first half is, uses some Virginia examples, but I basically range from South Carolina to, to Massachusetts. And it's in the second half where I just focus on, on Virginia. And it's the first half of the book where I deal with book farming. I, I picked out the Virginia examples to play to the crowd today. <laughs> but um, the agricultural press was such a, a, a circulating press. Um, there wasn't that much original material in these papers. So you'd find reports from all, the, all over the country in all the different papers. It wasn't as um, sectional, uh, at least in the 1820s and 30s, in the press itself. Um, uh, thanks for a very provocative lecture. And one theme that jumped out for me was this notion of trust in science. And I'm wondering if you could give your thoughts based on this kind of, this strain of research on climate change debate. <laughs> and how science is being used or not used, um, and where you might, can we draw parallels at all with where practice might go once we wade, wade through what science is trying to say about this? Um, can you answer that? <laughs> I think, I mean, to my mind, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I have thought about it in the sense of trying to understand the thorniness and the complication of global climate change debates in the sense that there's no ultimate deference to somebody who has more experience than someone else, since it's, it's at the level of modeling. Um, all the scientific debates aren't on the ground. We go and find evidence, and I'm not saying that there isn't, that we don't have a, how untold numbers of scientists actually doing work in the field to understand changing climate. But in the public debates about it, um, it's, it's at a higher, more abstract model-based level where you can't really defer to, well, what kind of experience do you have? You gain the experience within the model, just fundamentally away from the land. So that's not an answer to how, to, how it happens, but to me is a way for me to understand why it's so complicated and why the debates haven't closed down. I, yeah, you can't have a little schematic uh, measuring it to just say, well, here, here's how it goes for real. Thank you. It's a good question. Thank you.